Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. Throughout this episode, we will be evaluating diagnostic approaches to LGS in adulthood. We'll take into account some practical considerations we hope you can take into your practice and we'll finish off by looking at some case studies at the end. Before we get started, a few housekeeping notes. This medical education activity has been supported by Jazz Pharmaceuticals. Providing us with their insights and expertise today, I am delighted to introduce two leading neurologists. Dr. Steve Chung is a neurologist at the University of Arizona in Phoenix and Banner University Medical Center also in Phoenix. Dr. Chung, it is a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, George. Great to be here. And we are also joined by Dr. Rhys Thomas, consultant urologist at the Royal Victoria Infirmary, Newcastle, and reader in epilepsy at Newcastle University, where I happen to also study. It's great to have you here, Dr. Thomas. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the basics. Dr. Chung, I'd like to ask you first, how, how would you describe LGS? What is it? Yeah, it is a syndrome. It's a lennox gastaut syndrome. Uh, based on the previous description by Lennox initially, and then the 100 cases were reported by Gastaut, Dr. Gastaut back in 1966. So it's a relatively new diagnosis, but it composes of multiple various underlying disorders and disease that presented encephalopathy and various type of seizures that are usually very refractory. These occurs usually in childhood, um, usually before age 12, and the diagnostic criteria now specifically mentions that seizure has to start before age 18, but most of people will have seizures starting at age 12. So these are the ones that we consider as uh, difficult to treat. One of the most uh, refractory epilepsy syndrome that we are dealing with almost daily. Dr. Thomas, other than the symptoms that Dr. Chung just outlined, what, what are the other symptoms of LGS? Yeah, I mean, it's a great description, isn't it? But I mean, you, you asked how would you describe it or what is it? And it, it's different things to different people. So if you're a parent, then it's probably the diagnosis you don't want. When you go away and Google it, you know that seizures are lifelong. There's always intellectual disability. Treatment is difficult. And sometimes when you treat some seizures, you aggravate others. And it doesn't come alone. There's often challenging behavior, the sleep disruption. And so uh, it's, it's an epilepsy syndrome that... Um, causes a lot of parental anxiety, but also a lot of physician anxiety as well. When you've got multiple seizures, multiple causes, and an unknown prognosis when these things begin, um, it's really quite a, a management uh, quandary. Is it a progressive condition, Dr. Thomas? If you're a paediatrician, it would certainly look that way. It might start as infantile spasms. If you're lucky, you might think these spasms would be adequately treated and uh, you'd be left with very minimal uh, neurological involvement. But then, you know, a proportion of people who have infantile spasm will go on to develop Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and the seizures show themselves over time. And it's not just drop seizures and myoclonic seizures and convulsive seizures, the predilection for you know, status epileptus, convulsive and non-convulsive status means it can get increasingly more challenging to control over time. Yeah, I agree. Doctor, as Dr. Thomas mentioned, it is kind of complicated for both patient, patient's family, as well as physicians to dealing with a variety of symptoms, not only just epilepsy, but other surrounding symptoms. However, I want to emphasize one important concept that is they do not have to have a very severe type of encephalopathy or cognitive impairment. Uh, we now understand that there are spectrum of 
cognition as well as EEG findings and seizure types. So we will see a lot of those patients who had multiple, multiple seizure type with the childhood onset, but it has a very mild uh, cognitive impairment. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. And I think it's important for us in the future as well, because if we're going to be optimistic here and think that we could be treating early and treating with everly, ever more increasingly effective treatments, we should be expecting people to have better neurodevelopmental outcomes too. This encephalopathy should be modifiable and should change the, um, the outcome for these young people. You mentioned there there's a, a variety of different seizures and symptoms and uh, different stages of onset. Does, does all of those factors make diagnosis challenging for this condition, Dr. Chung? It's actually helpful to uh, early recognize those kind of different type of seizures because there are not many different type of uh, severe epilepsy syndrome that present with the multiple seizure types. Um, for example, people will, have, uh, people will have atonic seizures, tonic-clonic seizures, tonic seizures, clonic seizures, myclonic seizures, and even focal seizures. So many different types are involved with this type of syndrome. But early on, the people may recognize as a drop seizures, which is due to the tonic seizures or brief atonic seizures. So typically, if you see this, a lot of uh, youngsters wearing helmet to protect their head, uh, head injury from their falls. This medical education podcast is going to have a slight focus on adult diagnosis and, and the difficulties that pre- present themselves in, in the process. Do, are there variations between uh, the manifestation of symptoms in pediatric patients and, and adults? Is there much of a difference, Dr. Thomas? Uh, the care setup differs. And um, I mean, in pediatrics, really what you're seeing is the evolution of of seizures, seizure type, seizure frequency, and you're often chasing that with medication and with different strategies. Um, being an adult physician is sometimes a more fortunate position because I think the epilepsy has fully shown itself. It's unusual to get a new seizure type in adulthood. That would be atypical for Lance Gasto. Um, and so what we get, you know, so if the pediatrician's got the raw end of the deal there as things are in evolution, what they have as their advantage is they have they can do EEG. And so they can do as much as they need. They can do overnight EEG. They can get um, uh, all the EEG evidence that they would need to be able to differentiate Lennox Casto from other uh, epileptic encephalopathies. Whereupon as an adult, you don't get the opportunity to go back and look again at six, eight, ten years because that time has passed. And some of the key features may not necessarily show themselves in some adults. Um, but in terms of treatment strategy, you're really trying to get people as close to seizure-free as you can without giving them sufficient adverse side effects that would impact their quality of life. And, and that's the same for Lennox Gasto as it would be for any other uh, person with epilepsy. Yes, indeed, uh, for adult neurologists, there are several challenges to make a proper diagnosis of LGS. The first of all, the things that uh, Dr. Thomas already had mentioned, EEG pattern does change over time. Initially, when they're uh, in childhood, as typical textbook cases of a slow spiking wave discharges, generalized spiking wave discharges, those are actually very common. As a kid's growing older, in late teens and towards the adulthood, those patterns may be replaced by focal seizures or focal spikes or focal slowing or even diffuse generalized slowing. EEG tend to be continue to be abnormal. However, the hallmark of LGS diagnosis that you see in a textbook as uh, slow spiking with discharges may disappear. 
So this is one of those challenges people see when you get the EEG, you don't see that pattern and you may wonder whether the person has LGS or not without realizing that EEG pattern can change over time. The second thing is there are a lot of people who are in adult life now who never had a proper diagnosis of LGS. The, the term LGS coined um, towards the late 1970s. There are many people born before that, and these people are carrying the diagnosis of difficult to treat or symptomatic epilepsy. Now it's called um, uh, epileptic encephalopathy with refractory seizures. All different names probably means the same thing, but the actual diagnosis of LGS. So that's another thing. The other thing is maybe the change in seizure patterns. In early life, atonic seizures and tonic seizures seem to be more uh, prominent. And in adulthood, generalized tonic-clonic seizures as well as tonic seizures, those become a little bit more uh, frequent than the atonic seizures. So there's a, we have to recognize not only the EEG patterns, but also the seizure type may change as a, a person growing older. You, you make a really good point about the name there, and, and we, we see that. And obviously, as there are treatments that are licensed specifically for certain epilepsy syndromes, you'd be more likely to give people a label. Do, do you think people, we've been historically slow to use that label because it was always associated with such a severe epilepsy condition? Or do you think adults um, perhaps would just felt a bit of a fraud using uh, a, a label that's associated with pediatric onset epilepsy? What do you think the... Um, why do you think we've been reluctant to use the name, do you think? Yeah, this is uh, one of the reasons I'm so excited about doing this kind of program because we always think about this LGS patients so childhood onset that should wearing a helmet and very severely cognitively impaired as we talked about. But if you going back to even the initial uh, paper by Dr. Gaston himself, he described this kind of mild cognitive impairment and EEG patterns including the ones I just mentioned, the focal slowing or focal spike or diffuse slowing. So we have to do recognize uh, and not feel so reticent about making a diagnosis for the first time when patient shows up in your office and the patient is 55 years old. So I think we have to broaden up the diagnostic criteria. So now we're thinking about if anyone starts to have seizures in childhood, including atonic seizures and the falls and multiple different types, that tend to be refractory, and some degree of cognitive impairment. Broadly, those people can be diagnosed with LGS. And, and, and I, I, it's not necessarily part of the ILE uh, case definition, but in terms of a, a feature that helps clue me in, as well as people who wear helmets or people who need emergency medication, I, I, I find it quite easy to aggravate seizures with people with Lennox Gastro. If I over-medicate other people, I send them to sleep. If I over 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 medicate people with LGS, I can aggravate and bring out tonic seizures and sleep. I can bring out myoclonus with uh, injudicious use of sodium channel blockers. I don't know if that's been your experience or whether I've just been unlucky. No, no, no you're absolutely right. It's difficult to treat with any type of different mechanisms of extra medications. The other thing is the, these people tend to have some behavioral and psychosocial issues. So the medication that affect those kind of mood are also very important to monitor closely. I mean, it's wonderful hearing you both talk. You obviously bring such a wealth of experience to the table. And I'm sure that everyone listening will take something back from this podcast. I wanted to ask quickly about the prognosis of LGS. Is there much of a difference between those who are diagnosed as children and as adults? How does the prognosis look and, and differ for these different patient groups, Dr. Thomas? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. Okay, so I mean, the, the, it's the same epilepsy whether you're diagnosed with LGS as, as a as a child or an adult because this is a pediatric onset epilepsy. If you're diagnosing LGS and it's begun in an adulthood, I'd, I'd advise you to look again. This probably is not LGS. Um, so prognosis, I guess, to answer your question directly, if you're meeting an epileptologist for the first time as an adult, yet you've had a lifelong complex epilepsy, um, you have not had all of the benefits of a pediatric neurologist, pediatric specialist nursing, genetics, and modern treatment that you um, uh, would have had if you've only met a, a specialist as an adult. Um, that said, if you've got intellectual disability and a complex epilepsy, whether it's LGS or a any other cause, you you will have a, a foreshortened life expectancy. Unfortunately, that's the case. It's uh, sometimes seizure-related, such as sudden unexpected death and epilepsy or status epilepticus, sometimes associated with having other comorbidities. People get pneumonia. Uh, but um, people's life expectancy is, is shorter, unfortunately, uh, despite being under uh, specialist care. You mentioned the ILAE in your previous answer, Dr. Thomas. How, how's the classification of LGS changed with relation to this guidelines, um, classification of epilepsies in recent times? Yeah. So, I mean, previously it would be speaking to experts and there was a way of, um, of sort of compiling this kind of expert opinion. In Europe, we had the blue book that um, was people's experience, anecdotes of people who lived in uh, major European cities who told us this is in their experience what Alex Gasto looked like or Drave looked like. And then for the first time, we've got um, international consensus statements and the way that the ILE put these out. They have a, a team of people with a raft of uh, varying experience that work together. Then they put the statements out to the community for us to comment on and feedback. And they, they bring this together to make sure it makes sense in in all uh, different languages and all different healthcare settings. And now for the first time, if you're going to run a trial of a drug in Alex Gasto, you could say this is an ILAE defined uh, syndrome. I think what's useful is a bit of what they call traffic lighting. Red, you should not diagnose LGS in these circumstances. For example, starting under six months, that'd be very unusual. Um, amber, some caution, and green, these are features that we associated with. And I think that's important for LGS and LGS-like conditions because it, there are multiple causes. And so it will vary and will look different um, person to person. Yeah, so having that diagnosis specifically as LGS is quite important. It has an implication for both um, the finding a right therapeutic medications and other options, as well as education. Uh, I can just tell you about one of my patients who never diagnosed with LGS, but previous uh, diagnosis was a symptomatic generalized epilepsy. Uh, that was the old terminology from the ILAE classification. And now it's a, a, the epileptic encephalopathy and specifically Lennox-Gastaut syndrome as well too. Not only that, even the ICD code, ICD-9 does not even contain LGS as diagnosis. ICD-10 is the first time that we brought the terminology of LGS for us to make a proper diagnosis. So the patient had this uh, symptomatic epilepsy, refractory, falls all the time, but she was never diagnosed with LGS. Uh, when I gave the diagnosis, I was wondering as a physician, how does that change for them? Uh, the father came back a few months later and said, this actually changed a lot in their interactions and their understanding of the syndrome. Because before, he was only searching seizures, difficult seizures, or the refractory seizures. But now he goes right into LGS 
and he was able to connect with LJS Foundation and got a lot of description and education, and which he actually thought that was uh, quite changing in terms of a treating and interaction dynamics with her with his daughter. So I think it's a beyond just the finding a right therapy, but also guiding the patients into the right information and the education as well. I, I think that's an excellent point because it's quite isolating to live with a rare disease or look after somebody with a rare disease. And the experience of looking after somebody with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome will differ even in comparison to other uh, developmental and epileptic encephalopathies. You know, you've got some unique challenges within the LGS community. And we live in an ever increasingly connected age. And to allow patients, allow families to suddenly, you know, meet that family from the other coast of the United States or from another part of Europe and share their understandings. I mean, one of the lovely things about looking after adults is the older adults. You know, people are amazed to know that we've got people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s living with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, and so important to feed that back to families who are now being diagnosed for the first time as young children. The ILAE has recently been updated in terms of uh, the definition of LGS. How, in your opinion, Dr. Thomas, do you think clinicians can best use this new classification in practice? It, it depends what you want to be using it for. I mean, uh, again, I, you know, every neurologist listening to this one will, will know this, but I, you know, when you're speaking to the medical students, there are different levels of diagnosis. And sometimes all the best you can do is decide whether this is epilepsy or not. But once you've made that diagnosis, you want to classify the seizures, you want to look at the etiology of the epilepsy, and if you've got some EEG change, you can put together an electroclinical syndrome. But a, a, an LGS diagnosis allows you to do other things too. So for example, uh, it's not a great mimic, but there'll be some situations where we'll be asking, is this MAE or is this LGS? You know, imaging is much more important with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome than it is with MAE, where the imaging would typically be normal. You might be more likely to look at uh, a gene panel and look to see whether not only is this a, an LGS, but is this a, a genetically determined um, syndrome that we can go beyond the LGS diagnosis and say, is this also a single gene disorder? You know, so it, it, sometimes these these definitions and these classifications open doors um, to further things too. But also I wouldn't use the ILAE definition as a straitjacket because your patient will not have read the definition and they can present however they like to present. And so if you've got somebody who never, for example, had atonic seizures, it wouldn't put you off. You know, and if you had somebody who, for whatever reason, had a couple of years of seizure cessation and things just went quiet and that's not typical for Lennox Gasto, but that's just what happened to them and things deteriorated and had seizures in the future. That's just their disease course. It's their disease trajectory. So I'd use it as a guide rather than a straitjacket. Yeah, oftentimes as an adult neurologist, we don't really try to figure out the underlying cause again when somebody's suffering from seizures for 20, 30 years, sometimes even longer. So we are focusing on the treatment and also help their other behavior-related symptoms. But as you mentioned, Dr. Thomas, it is a quite important. There's a lot of advancement made in genetic diagnosis, which were not available previously. Um, we would, do not have to go on to the details, but even I recall this uh, one patient who had LJS diagnosis, uh, but later found to have a, a mitochondrial disorder. So I think it's uh, still important for us to be vigilant. And if there's any reasons that we can reopen the, the the studies for the diagnostic challenges. 
talked, uh, you've touched upon the sort of diagnostic process already in this in this conversation. And the theme of this podcast is adult diagnosis. We would like to explore that a little further. With this in mind, um, Dr. Chung, are there any specific um, considerations that physicians should take into con- uh, should take into account when when diagnosing um, LGS in in adulthood? Yeah, this is actually a little bit of a paradigm shift um, di- in di- of diagnosis of LGS in pediatric population versus adult population. So when I have a conversation with a pediatric epileptologist and neurologist, they do focusing on the EEG findings. As I mentioned earlier, they do have a hallmark. Uh, this is a generalized slow spiking wave discharges runs about 1.5 to 2.5 hertz, kind of slow. And then along with the other background changes and slowing. So they heavily rely on the the EEG, criteria EEG findings to make a diagnosis because they have not been established many years to be refractory. And sometimes the seizure type alone cannot be certain, uh, make a diagnosis of LGS. However, in adult population, in my opinion, Diagnosis of LGS is more clinical diagnosis. As I mentioned, EEG does change, so we cannot rely on the EEG alone. They have a multiple seizure types, but have some changes along the way. Their uh, cognition may be static at this point, not progressive. So it really comes down to knowing their seizure started early onset and becomes a clinical diagnosis rather than uh, rely on other diagnostic tests. I don't know if I could jump in there. I, you're absolutely right. I agree with everything you've said. But um, I mean, perhaps the biggest thing you need as, a, as an adult neurologist is the desire to make the diagnosis. You've got to be curious. You know, it's, it's all too easy to just say, well, this is drug refractory epilepsy. Because to go that stage beyond, you might have to unpick some stories. There might be a, a, an incorrect label. There might be a, a, a gene variant that isn't contributory you might have to get rid of. But more typically, you'd have to go back to the pediatric notes and do some digging. You've got to get out old EEG reports or look at age of onset of first seizures. Um, one of the things that's really made the uh, description, uh, so therefore the correct classification of seizures much easier for us is the use of home video. So, you know, now parents will come with videos of, you know, an atypical absence. I mean, that's a very difficult story to go and pick up from just a, um, a narrative description. But if people have video of that and myoclonus and convulsive seizures, you can put together the, uh, the portfolio of, of seizures in, in, in quite a confident way and that can help you make a diagnosis. Obviously, uh, Dr. Chung, you're based in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Thomas, you're in Newcastle in the northeast of England. From, uh, I know you've, we've, we've just met on this call, but what are the differences that you're aware of between diagnosis and adulthood for, for LGS uh, across the pond in the States and in, in the UK that you're aware of? I, I'll go first. So, I mean, we've got a big training difference here. So most adult neurologists in, in England aren't EEG trained. It's a separate training scheme. So we have uh, neurophysiologists as a, as a consultant specialty who do that diagnostic arm. Uh, so we're step divorced from the EEG here. Um, and, and we do, as we, we're working in a, so a socialized healthcare system, uh, we, uh, we have um, a rationing of some of the um, diagnostics such as EEG. It's harder to get a hold of. But equally, we've got whole genome sequencing available for everybody who needs it. So it's, we've got a funny hybrid system here. <laughs> 
So sort of uh, more advanced in some areas, but then uh, more restraints in others. Um, yeah, and you've got to you've got to make the most of what you've got. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's quite similar in United States. I think the difference is not between the uh, England and U- USA, but rather academic centers that are focusing on the epilepsy or epilepsy centers versus more rural uh, area that neurologists has a function as experts in everything. I think that's where the challenge might be because you don't have immediate available EEGs and long-term monitoring and those kind of uh, facilities or even skill set. So I think that's why it is important to provide this kind of education for them to learn quickly that especially the this is uh, emphasizing that LGS is a clinical diagnosis rather than they have to send somewhere or doing genetic testing or specific easy testing to make a diagnosis. And I guess the same would go, Prof Chung, to sort of access to clinical trials and things like that. There'd be, you know, the academic centres be more likely to have patients with LGS being tried on new medication. One of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is for obviously awareness of um, LGS and as you touched upon earlier, Dr. Thomas, the, the importance of curiosity and and that kind of having LGS in your mind as you're uh, seeing patients for the first time. Um, with this in mind, I'd, I'd like to ask this to you, Dr. Chung. Do you think that LGS should be considered in all adult patients with treatment-resisted seizures and cognitive impairments that you see that haven't already received a diagnosis? Yeah, you, you got that correctly, George. If I may add one more very important component, so it's a childhood onset. It has to be onset early enough uh, for them to have um, encephalopathies. And again, they're looking at the seizures and different seizure type as a symptoms rather than the cause of all um, all disease here. So we have to also recognize that the people who have infantile spasm is one thing that Dr. Thomas had mentioned, but they could have uh, some other type of underlying illness and even diagnosis that may evolve into LGS. It's more of a kind of basket holding place that have uh, multiple different seizure types and multiple different etiologies, but has to be the early onset. As I mentioned earlier, uh, most people have a seizure starting age 12 and younger. So anybody who started seizures later than that, even you may have a cognitive impairment or different seizure types, you have to investigate further to make a diagnosis of LGS. Uh, anything to add, Dr. Thomas? No, 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 no. I, 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 I mean, obviously you say, should you consider it for everybody? And the answer is, well, there'll be some people who've got an adequate uh, explanation there, but, um, you know, I, you, LGS would sit alongside other diagnoses for you. So, for example, one of the more common causes of infantile spasms is tuberous sclerosis, and people with TS will, some of them at proportion, will go on to have a drug refractory epilepsy that's not LGS, and a proportion will develop Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. So, again, it's just just be aware and not being too nervous about using the LGS label when it's appropriate. The church, the, one of the reasons that we emphasize and encourage people to make a proper diagnosis, especially LGS, is not just an academic exercise to make a proper naming the tool, the, the disease, but uh, we do have a specific treatment even the medication uh, approved with a specific diagnosis and some other therapies as well too. So that's why I think it's really important for us to recognize the diagnosis. Yeah, the early the better for, for the reasons that you just described. 
I'd like to, before we conclude this conversation, just ask each of you if you have any particular patient case studies which stick in your mind that demonstrate when you've come across certain challenges and how you've sort of worked your way around it in, in the diagnosis of uh, LGS. I'll, um, I'll start by asking you, Dr. Chung. I know you've already shared uh, a few case studies uh, throughout, this, throughout this podcast, but if there are any more that you could share, it'd be much appreciated. Yeah, she's, she's actually a good example that I want to share because she, again, the, she was 19 years old when I first saw her, saw her, and she had a diagnosis of this symptomatic epilepsy, refractory to about five medications at the time. Um, so the challenge was not only finding a right therapy and make seizures improve, but also educating the patients and herself about the illness. So as I mentioned, once the LGS was mentioned to her, they actually went online and got a lot of important information. And the father's comment was, I never knew there are so many people suffering the same thing. And she, he read the description and it, it fits to the teeth. It's everything written there describes my daughter. So he was quite elated for that. She did actually did very well with the medical treatment. However, she did actually have a fall and then had a uh, C-spine damage as well too. So I just want to emphasize again that it is ongoing battle. Just because we have a specific treatment does not mean that they're going to be all cured and all symptom-free or seizure-free. So they need, require, they continue to require not only the seizure treatment, some behavioral instructions because uh, they have underlying problems with that, but also that some medication can cause as a side effects. So just want to emphasize that she's still my patient. She's now 26 or 25 years old. Uh, she continues to do well. She even attempted to try to go to junior college. She was in the special education throughout high school, but she wanted to go to junior college and tried it. She, she tried one semester but that discontinued after that. So they kind of tells you that, um, again, the broad spectrum of cognitive disability uh, with this diagnosis. And uh, Dr. Thomas, any, any that you could care to share? Yeah, I'll, 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 um, I'll reflect back on what Steve was just saying. So, I mean, in, in terms of broad range of abilities, I've got a, a, um, a, a Paralympic uh, skier on my books. And you imagine the, um, you know, the cognitive reserve that's needed to be a, a skier. And my concern about uh, atonic seizures and drop seizures when you're going down and competing, but it, uh, he, wow. he's he's quite remarkable. But the the, the person I was going to um, uh, mention to you is somebody who you know, eventually wants the LGS uh, picture crystallised. It made a big difference to us. So we we knew that she had an intellectual disability. We thought it was at least moderate. Uh, we got that wrong. Um, she had very, very frequent atonic drop seizures, and uh, it was only because her parents were so diligent with her every morning, brushing the teeth in the morning. If a drop seizure, he hit the sink. And uh, the only reason why she had not lost all of her teeth and had not broken her nose repeatedly was because of her, her parents' support with her. They were really keen to uh, look for new treatments, really keen to look for new diagnoses, and eventually with some digging in pediatric notes, some contemporary EEG and some clinical nouse, we were able to put an LGS diagnosis together. The scan showed she had a, a, a double cortex. The gene DCX told us the reason why 
uh, this was the case. She went on a licensed, uh, impactful treatment for drop seizures, and we realized she didn't have that moderate intellectual disability. She was only mildly impaired. It was the encephalopathy that was uh, under frequent seizures that was uh, causing this uh, cognitive impairment. But underneath, she had quite a moderate autism. And so she's now 28, uh, never really had a true adolescence, but living in adolescence because her seizure freedom allows her to communicate, have personality, dress in the way that she would like to dress, and causing her parents new parenting challenges, living with somebody who's bright, alert, and, um, and they've never previously had to adapt their life to fit in with her autism before. So although on paper you'd say great success, seizure freedom, um, they've got new lifestyle challenges. Mm. That's quite remarkable. That's um, yeah, an incredible case studies you've just shared. And I, I have to ask about the your Paralympic skier who's a patient. Does they do they compete? What's the how how does that work? Yeah, I'm hoping to sign the document to get him to uh, compete again next year. Um, uh, I mean, it's not him, but for example, I've got another young woman who's a uh, Special Olympics um, a swimmer. Uh, LGS as well. And I, I know when they're doing well, because it's not seizure counting, I get her race times. And when she comes in with medals or trophies, I know that we're medicating her appropriately. And if she's off the off the pace, then and which is a really brave thing for her to do, because you know you read page 101 of what it's like to live with epilepsy and people warning about baths and swimming. So the fact that she and her dad can get her to compete is uh, phenomenal. Credit to them both. That's- quite remarkable and a lovely note to conclude this podcast on before we do just say goodbye um i just wanted to ask each of you if there there was one piece of uh, knowledge advice that you would like to share with our listeners that they could if they were to take one thing back into their practice from from all the things that we've discussed what, what would you like them to take home with them i'll start with you dr chung yeah something dr thomas had mentioned today resonates well with me that having a proper diagnosis and guide them through the therapy and guide them through their lives because they're actually having multiple challenges in their lives. And it is actually a small uh, piece of their life to have a proper diagnosis. But again, to me, the importance of this is not only uh, making a proper diagnosis, a right diagnosis, but treatment, expectation, and they should know what to expect. They're wondering, whether there are any other people like me. So all these kind of things are quite important. So I just want to encourage you, uh, everybody listening to this, that do not afraid to make a diagnosis with LGS. It is broad range of diagnostic um, challenges and diagnostic criteria. But just go back to the, the main things that we mentioned, childhood onset, at least mild cognitive impairment, and uh, several different type of seizures, in, mainly including the dropsies and drops and the tonic seizures as well. One, one piece of advice to take home, Dr. Thomas. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Don't be afraid to make a diagnosis. And if you're working with people with an intellectual disability and working with people with seizures, this will come naturally to you. You've got to remain humble because you'll get it wrong. And you've got to remain curious. Don't be afraid. You can change that diagnosis or evolve it over time. But don't be afraid to make that Lennox Gaster diagnosis. Dr. Chong, Dr. Thomas, it's been a real pleasure speaking with both of you today. Thank you both so much for your time. Thanks for having us. It's been a real pleasure, George. Thank you. And that concludes today's discussion. I'd like to thank once again my wonderful guests, Dr. Reese Thomas and Dr. Steve Chung. 
And if you enjoyed this conversation, please look out on the EMJ podcast feed for, for more wonderful medical education podcasts. Until next time, have a wonderful week and take care.